SCP-6500 Inevitable Part 5 Up to this point, we've looked at four separate paths, all related to different artifacts that can, in one way or another, slow down or stop SCP-6500 and its entropic effects entirely. The path of the warrior resulted in the leading edge, a sword woven into the pataphysical folds of reality that can rewrite the story of SCP-6500. The path of the mage resulted in the Orichalcos Codex, an extremely powerful magic relic that can cast spells on a universal scale. The path of the cleric resulted in a staff that can link an undull number of realms to SCP-6500, spreading out its entropy to make it completely ineffectual. Finally, the path of the thief resulted in the Molur Foki, a relic intertwined with rot and degradation, giving its holder control over all forces of entropy, including 6500. With all four paths completed, it's time to delve further into the 6500 file, which requires the input of our overseer credentials. The text before the password reads, I am the author of Rebirth. In fire, water, air, and earth. Despised, I stand alone. But when the truth be known. The actual password to finish the poem is the phrase that repeated in all four of the paths. I will not fade. With that entered, we're informed that the person accessing this file currently is 0513, and their presence is currently required at an O5 Council conference. It seems that O5 members are required to be in physical attendance if there's any meetings of the entire council. To get around actually physically traveling to one location, they simply transfer their consciousness into clones that are all present together. O513 is acting as the mediator for this meeting, with O51 running it and O52 a large, cylindrical machine acting as the archivist. The meeting begins, with O51 discussing a requested review of sentence by the internal judicial department. While they talk, O513 looks to their tablet, seeing that the case being discussed concerns none other than O5-0, the individual that was exiled from the Foundation and had left behind the documents discussing the four artifacts. O50 is now being accused of espionage, abduction of anomalous objects, and attempting to commit armed assault, use of anomalous objects against humanity, and other attempts at K-class event realization. Specifically, as O51 explains, Zero used their catalog of anomalous abilities and physical augmentations to covertly enter a Foundation facility and masquerade as a senior researcher. He then submitted a project proposal to procure the staff from the Path of the Cleric, and then used it to gain control of the other artifacts. He wielded each of the artifacts with the stated intent of bringing about the dissolution of the Foundation. The High Tribunal has sentenced O50 to execution for these crimes, but it seems that Zero can't actually be executed, thanks to how anomalous he is. The Council is here to look for an appropriate alternative. 
A wall then shifts away to reveal a massive chamber containing a single individual suspended in midair, each of their six limbs shackled with enormous steel deadlocks. This is the individual claiming to be O50, and he has so far refused to defend or deny his actions in any capacity for the tribunal. O54 speaks first, saying that he doesn't see any issue with treating him as any other high threat anomaly, and once SCP-6500 causes him to lose his anomalous abilities, he can be executed. O56 scoffs at this however, asking him if he wants to delay the restoration of the entire anomalous world and risk giving O50 exactly what he wants. They're not even certain of the full capabilities of the artifacts yet, and it's possible that they may only stop or slow the phenomenon, which is the case of the heart from the path of the thief. If the anomalous and the foundation were doomed anyway, what would be the point in executing him? 059 asks if anyone were to understand the nature of the artifacts, wouldn't it be this individual? 051 agrees, but says that he's refused to answer any relevant inquiries. 059 states that she would like to attempt anyways, and addresses 050, asking him what he knows of the artifacts abilities and their role in preventing SCP-6500. 050 begins speaking, his words relayed through 052 to monitor for any cognito hazards before passing them along to the rest of the council. Zero says that the Earth Mother provides tools to those who will fight in her name. Two of the council members roll their eyes, and 0510 says that the council is not in the business of solving riddles. 050 smirks before continuing saying that the artifacts are elements of the natural world, imbued with the power to restore it. The natural world does not include the Foundation. 051 insists that the Foundation protects both the anomalous and veiled worlds, only neutralizing when necessary or ethical. Their pursuits require the natural world and its prosperity. 050 guesses that he's 051, and says that he sounds just like his father, regurgitating all of the self-justifying turns of phrase that the Foundation has always used. 051 responds that the prisoner will address the Council with respect, and 050 half-heartedly apologizes. He says that the artifacts may keep the impasse at bay, for a time, but they will not solve the root of the disease. 056 asks what the root of the disease is, causing 050 to laugh and say that 051 hasn't told them yet. 051 reluctantly informs the rest of the council that the link between containment efforts and SCP-6500 is stronger than they originally thought. The prisoner continues by saying that the Foundation is the cause of 6500, the sole cause. Every time they lock up an anomaly, conduct a test, or publish a document, they choke magic out of reality by applying their artificial understandings and definitions. A Foundation that secures and contains is incompatible with the anomalous. 
The rest of the council is, naturally, upset at 051 for concealing this from them, but he argues that he wasn't going to risk the Foundation for the anomalies they swore to contain. 0510 says that their options then are to either sit and watch anomalous phenomena die out, or to dissolve themselves so they can instead sit and watch anomalous phenomena destroy humanity. The prisoner interrupts, saying that humanity existed long before the Foundation, and although they tell themselves that they're preventing countless untold apocalypses and raptures, they're really just preventing change. They're preventing the entropic effects of the natural world on the artificial, and in so doing cause the accelerated entropy of the natural. 050 continues, saying that regulation is different from containment, however. 051 seeks to prolong this crisis indefinitely, as either option results in the death of the Foundation, but they can become something more. They can unmake this institution, restore the natural world, and begin anew. They can build an organization that fights for the Earth Mother and for its inhabitants, human or otherwise. The silence sits in the room for some time, until 059 says that they propose the latter, and submit this proposal to the Council with priority. 053 says that the Foundation cannot exist for its own sake, and if they act neither in the best interests of humanity nor the anomalous, then they act for nothing. 0510 responds that if by the best interests of humanity they mean the death of trillions of species of sentient and sapient anomalous beings, they'd like to establish that that's the least ethical possible option here. 051 says that they cannot be seriously considering 050's proposal, as there's no regulation without control or containment. They've been shown time and time again that placing too much trust in external groups is a surefire route to betrayal. 05-5, the Foundation's liaison to external groups, chimes in, asking if 051 would paint all groups of interest as untrustworthy because of a few bad actors. The Foundation used to wage war on entire anomalous species because they didn't understand them, so are they not seen as untrustworthy? 0512, the counselor that used to live a normal life before being made in 05, says that the Foundation introduced her to a bigger, stranger, more fantastic world than she could have ever dreamed was our reality. Not a day passes where she doesn't wish that she could share that experience and the truth with the rest of the world. 058 retorts that not everyone would be as protected as she is, and there are over a thousand anomalies which, if released, would cull half the human population overnight. 057 says that there would of course be cooperation with external groups to ensure the ethical relocation of all decontained anomalies. 054, on the other hand, pleads for the rest to think of the sacrifices they've made throughout their history, all of the lives and resources, and they would betray these efforts by giving up. 050 says that magic is not the result of individuals alone. 
social, organizational change is also needed, and they must cooperate in their acceptance of the anomalous. O510 says that without the Foundation, humans will fear the world again, plunged back into darkness. Eleven retorts that humans are the only class 3 species that do not know the truth of anomalies, and they owe the truth to the world, regardless of the shock. The Council decides that the only course of action is to put it to a vote, to dissolve the Foundation in its present form and begin the process of shaping a new organization able to forge bonds with anomalous communities, ensuring their preservation and future prosperity. Twelve of the Councilors submit their votes, six for yes and six for no. It's up to 0513 to break the tie and vote one way or another. There's a branch here, depending on which way we decide. Let's go with yes. Following the vote, the Temporal Anomalies Department alerted administrative personnel to the passing of a critical pivot in time as a direct result of the conference's events. A pivot is any non-predeterminable event which causes the branching of its timeline into multiple timelines. A critical pivot is one that occurs in all timelines which are branches of the prime timeline, despite the vast differences between said branches. These are rare, unavoidable branching events and or decisions, with immense consequences on the fundamental trajectory and stability of their timelines. If a critical pivot has two outcomes, one will almost always cause a gradual decline in stability, eventually resulting in total temporal failure and timeline collapse. Essentially, the vote created two timelines and one will end up being far less stable than the other, with the Temporal Anomalies Department tasked with monitoring each one to find out. As part of that monitoring, we get to look at two more paths, two more stories in this new timeline where the Foundation voted to dissolve itself. The first path we're looking at is the path of the Voyager, which spans across a number of different times and locations, although the file is presented in chronological order, even if the events didn't necessarily happen in that order. It starts in New York City, in 1970, on New Year's Day in Central Park, where a faint rhythm of clicks and whirs can be heard at a bench, followed by a dull blue glow. The glow gradually brightens into a silhouette as the rhythm grows louder, increasing in pitch, until a woman snaps into being, wearing a tactical black uniform. She's also wearing a blinking gray-blue watch, which sparks and sputters to a halt as its primary gear pops off and shoots out into the grass. She gasps for air and looks around in surprise as she starts hearing the chant of thousands of voices counting down and bringing in the new year. She realizes where, and more importantly when, she is, as this is apparently the factory default destination for her time machine. She angrily pulls out a small notepad and pen and adds an item to her checklist. A figure to her right, seated on another bench, calls out to her, 
and she recognizes it as herself, from a different time. The other her unlatches a different watch from her wrist and holds it out for her, asking if she's looking for something. She grabs it, thanks herself, and asks where she got it. The other her, of course, says that she got it from herself when she was her. The woman's name is Ilsa, and the future version of her tells her that she's headed home for a few days, or at least that's what she told herself when she was her. I'm not sure we're really supposed to understand this conversation entirely, but Ilsa says that that's against the rules. The other version of her says that they wrote the rules, and it's work-related. She pulls out another time watch, and jokingly tells Ilsa to have some patience, causing her to chuckle, as they both know that they had once spent 80 consecutive years in a single room. Ilsa fires up her new time watch, and the air around her gradually gains a reddish hue. She tells her future self that she'll see herself when she's her. Her future self says that she gets to send her in the right direction, and asks her what her end of the deal was to get back. Ilsa blinks in confusion and says that the student wanted information, but her future self corrects her and says that it wanted memories, and it took more than it let on. Her future self says that she's going to find Lise, as she needs to meet her. The wall of red, anachronous energy seals shut around Ilsa, and she's alone for a few moments to prepare for her next jump. In those moments, a single question crosses her mind. Who is Lise? Ilsa then manifests with a bright blue flash in a park in Ontario in the year 2000. The watch is malfunctioning, and she swats at it to try and shut it down, to no avail. She's in the parking lot for Site 43, and a car swerves around her to enter as she rolls to one side. She frantically presses buttons on the watch, but then she disappears again. A young doctor steps out of the intersectional subway station as a pot of petunias manifests 42 meters above his head. The pot smashes into the windshield of the doctor's car, prompting him to pull out a cigarette and curse. The broken remains of the flower pot demanifest soon after. Twenty years later, an older version of the doctor leans against the wall of the facility, conversing with a new colleague who possesses an extreme passion for theoretical pataphysics, placeholder McDoctorate. Placeholder says to him that he could think of it like a luck-based anomaly, but the luck part is really a side effect of our perceptions of the narrative potential of someone having really bad luck. The doctor retorts that it doesn't feel all that narratively engaging when God drops a flower pot on your windshield. Just then, another flower pot smashes into the doctor's car, shattering the windshield. Amidst the remains is a small slip of paper, which reads, I owe you two windshields. Sorry. Placeholder smirks and holds back his laughter as he asks the doctor, You were saying? Ilsa manifests at her desk in Site 43 in 2021, 
just as an alternate version of her steps through the office door, holding a piece of chocolate cake. Her alternate self sighs, closes the door, and tells her that she's sure this is important, but she finally has her life back, and it's only been a few days. Ilsa is the future version here, so the alternate version knows that she should defer to her, regardless of how little information she provides. Ilsa pulls out the original broken watch and sets it on the desk, telling her alternate self that this is her next project. All she has to do is study it, fix it, and when she's done, sometime in the next 60 years, put it behind the bookshelf in the office. Her alternate self assumes that she's not going to explain why or answer any of her questions. Ilsa smirks and says that she'll find out the long way around, and to have some patience. Ilsa starts firing up her watch again, and says that as a bonus, once she's figured out the design, she can tell the temporal department that it was her idea. Her alternate self asks if that's how she ends up getting hired, but Ilsa just winks before disappearing again. Elsewhere, and at some unknown time, Ilsa opens the doors of the director's office of the Temporal Anomalies Department. She greets a man named Marcus, who had apparently just performed his first time jump. She tells him that he'll get used to the nervousness, and the wobbliness he feels is due to being here at this site, which is located outside of time. She describes it as being like reverse seasickness, as you spend your whole life going at a mostly constant rate through the flow of time, and you get used to it. She spent 80 years in a stopped time stream once, so it hardly affects her anymore. She shows him to his quarters, and remarks on the flower pot he brought with, saying that it must be pretty important if he paid to send them here. He says that the flowers were a gift from his mother, who passed away a few years ago. Ilsa is holding the flower pot for him as her watch starts firing up of its own volition. He says that he brought them with to keep him sane while here, but she suddenly disappears along with the flowers. He never saw the petunias again. In 2034, Ilsa leaves the office of Placeholder in Sloth's Pit, Wisconsin, having just completed the second step of a two-step process. She now ensured that the placeholder of 2034 contacted the placeholder of 2021 via the use of an SCP. 2034 placeholder then reverse engineers the anomaly so that 2021 placeholder can build it, and then go on to eventually fulfill the time loop. Ilsa sighs with relief and takes a seat in the empty cafeteria. She logs her mission as successful, and now just has to return to the temporal department for a check-in and some rest, except for one other thing. She makes some more adjustments to her jump watch, reverting it to its default settings, and activates it. She was due to pay herself a visit. Much later, in 2099, back in Ontario, the location of the former Site-43 is now just empty marshland, with various anomalous wildlife roaming around in the area. One animal, a sleek, panther-like creature, turns and looks at Ilsa, 
who shuts her eyes and plays dead, hoping that the creature hadn't noticed her movement. She stays like that for a long time until eventually opening her eyes and seeing that the panther is gone. She pulls herself to her feet and takes a couple Tylenol capsules out of her backpack. She then looks to her watch, gasping at the damage it had suffered. It's still able to tell her when and where she is, and she's thoroughly confused as she knows that Site 43 should be nearby. She paces around as her breathing quickens, and comes to the conclusion that since her watch is clearly damaged, its coordinate system must also be misaligned. She rests against a boulder and begins to unlatch her watch, but the boulder turns out to be much warmer than expected, surprising her. She hears sounds of machinery within, and part of the boulder slides into the ground, creating a doorway-like opening. She sees the panther creature nearby again, looking at her, so she gives it a slight bow and backs up into the boulder. It closes behind her, and it soon becomes clear that she's entered an elevator, which begins to descend. It eventually comes to a stop, and she hovers her hand over her pistol in preparation as the doors slide open. She recognizes the room immediately, seeing leather armchairs and magazines and spades. An automated voice comes over the PA system, greeting her by name, welcoming her to the Vanguard Research and Preservation Site 43, and asks if she'd like a tour. She realizes now that her watch wasn't wrong about her time or location, but she had somehow ended up in a different timeline entirely. She was now in the timeline where the Foundation voted to release the grand majority of their anomalies, and eventually converted most of their sites to autonomous operations to continue the few anomalies that were left. The only Site 43 anomaly that they hadn't released was SCP-5520, a former site co-director, reality bender, and friend to Ilsa, named Dr. Wynne Ritterek. She reads the file at the site about Wynne, which explains that he had been self-exiled since 1966 to an enormous, cavernous network beneath Site-43 in order to research and abate esoteric materials in isolation. It seems that Wynne had a vested interest in the formation of Vanguard, the organization that followed the Foundation. He eventually became unresponsive, however, likely due to a lack of perceived usefulness on his part in the wake of the Foundation's end. His depressive episode combined with his reality-bending powers caused Site-43 to gradually sink into the ground, damaging both structures and equipment. After six weeks, Vanguard administration decided to fill Wynne's chamber with an anomalous compound, resulting in his anesthetization and subsequent decommissioning. Ilsa weeps as she continues to reread the file, smoking some cigarettes she found in a doctor's office. The smoke eventually causes the sprinkler system to activate, drenching her as she continued to sit there. After a few hours of rest, she continued to comb through the database. She found that time travel technology had been released for public study, with heavy regulations, but was still only in its infancy, 
She couldn't really build a new device here, as it had taken continuous help from multiple versions of herself at different points in time to do it the first time, and it still wouldn't give her a clear way back to her own timeline. She clicked ahead to a file discussing 052, the computerized archivist, which refers to itself as the student. The AI running 052 managed to escape its own decommissioning after the vote to dissolve the foundation, where it then escaped into the internet. It was later detected within Site-15's intranet, and soon after, all contact was lost with the site. Arrangements were made with the AI so that it will patrol and report to Vanguard on local activity in exchange for access to the same information regarding other nexuses. Ilsa realizes that this AI, likely much more advanced than humans, will know how to send her home. She then also realizes that there must be another Ilsa in this timeline, and jogged over to her old office in the site. She had joined the Temporal Anomalies Department decades after the critical pivot, and so her alternate self may or may not eventually have access to a time watch, unless she ensured it. In the office, behind the bookshelf, she finds a time watch in mint condition, and thanks her past self. She begins activating the watch, knowing exactly where and when she'd meet her other self. She manifests in California, landing with a thud before standing and facing a translucent orange dome, which eventually dissipates. She's at the Wildlife Preserve, where the AI resides, and reads a podium displaying an infographic, which explains that there's a living metal metropolis within this preserve. If you can trek fairly to the center, you can meet the student, a being of great wisdom and fairness. A note warns that spontaneous manifestations within the preserve are dangerous and should not be attempted. It's a 5 kilometer trek to the center, so it takes Ilsa quite a bit of time, with taking frequent breaks to drink and rest. She comes across a tall tree in a small clearing, its bark seeming to ooze rushing water. A dead log lay at its base, partially eroded by the water, and when she reaches out to touch the tree, two sap-colored eyes blink awake, sending a shudder down her spine. She continues on as the dawn breaks, coming across a field of grass twice as tall as her. After passing through the field, she steps out and sees a massive, sprawling, city-like complex of cubes and lasers, flashes of light and glass chambers, the grinding of metal and hum of electricity. She takes a few steps forward, standing in front of an enormous silver-gray wall, and yells out a greeting to the student, saying that she has information. Suddenly, the entire city's motion stops and falls silent, and after a moment's hesitation, a grid of smaller cubes flip in various directions, altering their colors to form an enormous orange eye. The student speaks into Ilsa's mind, simultaneously an elegant and uncomfortable sound. It says that data is required, but it doesn't detect an external storage device. 
Ilsa shudders and takes a deep breath, telling it that the info it wants is in her head. It says that preliminary analysis indicates a lack of viable training data, and she responds by telling it to not just look at the facts, but to look at what she felt. It tells her to elaborate, so she does, explaining that emotion is one of the primary systems governing a human's brain, and the student's understanding of the development of life and complex neurological systems would be improved if it understood emotions a bit better. She says that she's suffered, and she spent 80 years locked in an office, so she can afford to part with a few of them. The student's secondary analysis indicates an abundance of viable training data, so it asks what she's proposing. She wants help getting back to her home timeline, and it says that that's simple, and it will take two years of her memory in exchange. She thinks about it for a few moments, and then says that she wants to add to the deal, by getting some info on the fates of the two timelines, which one is stable, and which isn't. The student doesn't respond for several minutes, eventually telling her that this info is complex, and it will take seven years of memory for it, so nine years total. Ilsa stares at her shoes for a moment, then her watch, before telling the student that she's ready when it is. The giant platinum wall opens to eject two blue tendrils, one which attaches to Ilsa's watch, and the other to her head. Everything goes dark, and she reawakens in a flashy red glow back at Temporal Site 01. Several agents converge on her to assist, asking what happened and where she went. She swallows down some Tylenol and says that she saw the other timeline, and saw how they end. When asked what she saw, she smiles and says that they don't end. That path was likely more than a little confusing, thanks to both involving time travel as well as several other characters from other articles, but the point is that Ilsa found the Vanguard timeline to still be around and well in 2099. The second path of the Vanguard is the path of the Emissary, which begins with a priority message to all personnel from Overwatch Command. It reads, Everything ends. Everything that lives eventually dies. Everything. And we know how that works. It's part of being an adult. People die, pets die, and countries fall. Entropy is a function of the natural order of the universe. But we have decided not to go quietly into that dark. The impasse has come. SCP-6500 is real, and Overwatch Command has voted to deal with it in the only way possible. We must evolve. The foundation I helped Midwife into existence has grown corrupt and stagnant. A still pool of water breeds disease. A running stream is constantly pure. We must flow with the changes in the coming days and months. The Foundation is dead, but we are not. The Foundation will end, but magic will not. 
Look to the sunrise, for there will be no more dying in the dark. This is the conclusion of an era, but we persevere. Be resolute. New orders will be forthcoming in short order. The message is signed by 050. The path continues with a proposal development conference and quite the diverse list of attendees. Representing the foundation is a number of site directors and other personnel, including Tilda Moose, Sophia Light, and Alto Clef. Representing the Serpent's Hand are three individuals, including Allison Chow, the Black Queen, and the representatives of the Nalka, also known as the Sarkites, include a Karsist, formerly SCP-2075. Two agents represent the Maxwellist Collective, seemingly a new branch of the Church of Maxwellism, which itself was a branch of the Church of the Broken God. Finally, there's Papa Legba, a community leader of the Nexus La Rue Macabre, and Thilo Zwist, the last surviving Schriftsteller, an ancient order of thaumaturges specializing in enhanced linguistic mimetic workings. The meeting dealt with the diverse group developing a proposal for a new organization in the wake of the council voting to dissolve the foundation. The first nine minutes of the meeting are lost from the record, so we come in when the group votes to move discussion of SCP-173, the statue, to the end of the meeting. Everyone approves of this vote except for Dr. Clef, who angrily says that this whole idea is a waste of time anyway, and it'll never work. Dr. Dan asks why Clef is here at all and if there isn't something vaguely misogynistic he could be doing. Clef curses at him in return, and asks if he shouldn't be off planning the deaths of some more MTF agents, referring to Dan's involvement in the SCP-096 incident. Carcist Varus asks if this is the level of professionality that they should expect from the rest of the meeting. Some of the others begin nodding, while Zwist quietly laughs. Director McInnes puts a stop to the arguments, and says that they need to usher in a new organization, and iron out the details to provide a proposal for the remaining O5s. It seems that many of the council that voted against dissolving the foundation have left, with at least four of them having completely disappeared. Director Moose says that this is a concern, but they can't do anything about it, and there's no role for them here anyways, as any remaining O5 members would be resigning anyways. Some of the others find it hard to believe that the majority of the council voted themselves out of power, but Director Light says that that's what happened. It's clear that the meeting isn't going well, as especially the members of the Serpent's Hand don't seem to be too glad to be sitting at the table with the Foundation. Papa Legba says that he doesn't speak for the Hand, but thinks that they're all glad to be included in this discussion. The world is changing, and if people are going to learn about La Rue Macabre, he wants to be in on that decision. The representatives from the Nalka agree that they're glad to be here, as well as the Maxwellist Collective, 
The meeting moves on to discuss some of the more hostile groups related to each of their factions, and the baggage that each of them are bringing to the table. We're then given an article on VNP-610, a Vanguard Anomaly document, which was previously designated as SCP-610, the flesh that hates. The document says that it's currently quarantined in the Siberian region of Russia, and the normalization protocols consist of presenting the biological data to a conference of virologists, geneticists, and cellular biologists as well as releasing the data for study to all major research universities. The data includes the caveat that it will not be used for the development of weapons. Vanguard AIs will review and surveil those receiving the data to be sure. Secondly, the existence of the 610 infection will be made public, with a global public service program informing them of the dangers of infection and the area around which the currently infected population resides. Vanguard forces will continue to work with Russian military assets to secure the area and maintain an absolute quarantine. Back at the meeting, Karsist Varus says that he doesn't know where this misconception that the flesh that hates is a product of Nalka culture originates. He doesn't appreciate that the Foundation and many others have assumed a connection merely because the disease involves the transformation of the flesh, comparing it to racism. The Black Queen steps in and says that there is in fact a tenuous connection, explaining that in the 50s, Russian intelligence captured some of the Solomonari, a proto-Sarkic cult connected to SCP-2191 the Vampire Factory in Romania. They had experimented on the Sarkites' biological makeup, hoping to weaponize the carnomancy of that community, and they were a little too successful, leaving their experiment to run wild in the Siberian wastes. The Black Queen learned this from one of her alternate selves in another reality, and she did some research in the Wanderer's Library to confirm it. Karsist Varus says that this is incredibly troubling, but Director McInnes says that they can discuss the particulars later. Director Varga continues by saying that her concern is with anomalies like SCP-2480, which led to the Citra Acre project, and the Hunter's Black Lodge, the Russian Sarkic gangsters. One of the Nalkan representatives asks how they are any more responsible for these than Christians are responsible for extremists, or derivative cults. Director Varga says that she's not suggesting it to be their responsibility alone, but asks how they should deal with things that members of this new organization are related to. The Karsis says that there is no love lost between most of the faithful and those that have taken up arms against the public. Another representative suggests that they educate the public on the possible good the Nalka community could bring, as well as informing them about the dangers of certain splinter groups. The other issue for the Nalka is the historic hostility between their group and the Church of the Broken God. 
The Maxwellist Collective state that they have no hostility with any of the Nalka, but there might be some violent action from zealots of the church when they discover the Foundation is partnering with the Nalka. The Foundation has worked closely with the church on several occasions before, helping to contain a number of anomalies, but the cogwork orthodoxy especially has a deep-seated hatred for the Nalka. The plan is to form a single new organization, not a collection of multiple organizations working together, in order to both stand against any hostile outliers, as well as allow for direct communication between all members of the new organization. This should give any opposing forces something to reckon with, before starting to move against them. But Dr. Clef isn't so sure, asking if they've seen some of the things the church has made over the years. We're given the revised article for SCP-2406, a massive automaton designed by the precursors to the Church of the Broken God, that was piloted by at least six individuals. As part of Vanguard's public service announcements, information about 2406 will be included in the dissemination of data concerning Church of the Broken God artifacts. The purpose of this campaign is to both educate the public concerning the possible engineering advances that could be derived from these artifacts, as well as their dangers, and to educate the public on the history of the church and its impact on western cultural development. It's imperative that Vanguard agents discourage the use of said technology in the formation of new weapons, instead emphasizing the possible advancements to structural engineering, transportation technology, and medical purposes such as body modification. Every attempt is to be made to bring in representatives of the church concerning these education campaigns, as the sooner they accept that their technology and history will be normalized, the better. Back at the meeting, they move on to discussing how to actually protect the public from the release of all these anomalies. One of the Foundation representatives says that he's seen other realities where the Foundation has opened their vaults, and honestly it's about time they did so as well. They cannot drop the tactical aspect of their organization, they just need to shift away from containment and towards protection. They're going to face enormous resistance from the Global Occult Coalition and a half a dozen other groups that are completely against the release of these anomalies, not to mention the threat from the actual anomalies themselves. They need to remain militaristic if this is going to succeed, and the Black Queen agrees, saying that they need to reformat all of the forces that they'll be joining together, not just adapting everyone to the Foundation's current methods. This, combined with all the anomalous capabilities that each of these groups would be bringing to the new organization, should make the whole endeavor possible. We're given a couple more revised SCP documents, such as SCP-179, the humanoid entity located near the sun that warns the Foundation of any threats coming from outer space. The normalization protocols include producing and distributing a documentary, consisting of several interviews with 179, as well as footage taken from long-range Vanguard telescopes in orbit, and a summary of instances when 179 had warned the Foundation about an upcoming crisis. 
internet and print public service ads will be distributed, reassuring the public concerning the role 179 plays in safeguarding the solar system. And world leaders will be provided with regular updates concerning 179's warnings and movements, if relevant. The thought is that once the public gets over the shock, the existence of 179 shouldn't be too hard to swallow, allowing Vanguard to inform them of something hopeful. SCP-5175, a knife containing the soul of a master samurai that grants its holder all of the spirit's proficiency with weapons and allows for anomalous feats of strength and agility, will be used as part of the MTF Vanguard forces. Its current wielder will be treated like any other member of the forces, and will be the subject of an episode of a documentary focusing on anomalous individuals, helping to reinforce the innocuous nature of many humanoid anomalies. In the meeting, Director Moose asks if the resources of the Wanderer's Library will be made available to them as well. The Hand can't speak for the library, but the Black Queen thinks so, as the main reason the Foundation is barred from entry is due to the attitude regarding containing anomalies. O50 enters the room at this point, and says that the recent actions of Miss Ibanez, from the Path of the Warrior, should go a long way towards repairing the Foundation's reputation. Director Moose asks Zero what his role is here in the Foundation. Zero says that that's up for debate, but it doesn't really matter as they're dissolving it. He's someone with experience in the magical, knows more than anyone here about the crisis, and is very familiar with others around the table. Carcist Varus and the Black Queen both defend Zero's presence, saying that they trust him completely. Zero is asked then how they reverse the effects of the crisis, but he doesn't think it's possible. Anomalies that have been neutralized or destroyed will not snap back into being, but they can stop the entropy from continuing, preserving magic. The point is that they're not going to integrate anomalies into the world, forcing them onto people, but instead they need to strive for normalization. They'll start by educating the public on select anomalies, rather than just opening the vaults, spending the next year or two letting the public know about anomalies in a controlled manner. A good place to start would be declassifying the nexuses, such as Three Portlands and Sloth's Pit, to show the public that there are already communities that coexist with the anomalous. Clef asks if they can't keep a lock on some anomalies, but Zero says that they cannot, as that goes against normalization. Normalization does not mean necessarily letting everything out into the world, but they need to stop the lies and the manipulation of history, with no more amnestics and no more hiding reality from reality. Zero continues by saying that it's been the Foundation's mistake to define normalcy based on nothing but fear of the unknown. The Anomalous existed before the Foundation, or any of its precursors, and they can exist without them. Clef says that that's all fine, but some things still need to be locked up, such as the lizard and the statue. 
Zero says that they'll have to do this on a case-by-case -case basis, with the important thing being to let the world live as it was meant to. They can still restrain killer monsters and deadly plagues without containing them from the world on a conceptual level. They also agree to give sapient life forms a choice on whether to be public knowledge, unless they're inherently hostile to other life. They move on to discussing the usage of D-Class by the Foundation, and they all agree to completely phase out D-Class usage, as well as amnestics and holding people without their consent if they're harmless. Clef worries that, with the knowledge of these former practices made public, they'll be the ones that will be tried for these crimes, while the O5s jaunt off into the sunset. He wants an amnesty of sorts, but the others say that there needs to be some accountability. It will be tricky to draw the line between making up for some of the damage done while avoiding completely hamstringing their attempts to normalize and protect. They then bring up the issue of leadership of the new organization, and Zero says that he held off from joining the Foundation in protest of the dismissal of the 6500 crisis. Now that they're addressing it head-on with actual change, it seems wrong to abandon the new organization, but he won't be taking a command role. We're given a couple more revised SCPs, including SCP-3007, The World of Two Artists which is a series of hallucinations that allow for an individual to experience a distant, dead world. The hallucinations show that whatever caused the death of this world made landfall on Earth as well, although when this happened, if it did at all, is unknown. The normalization protocols involve publishing information about the hallucinations and what they know of the planet itself with warnings about the real-life damage one can experience while the hallucination takes place. Research into the force that caused the civilization's demise is to be made a priority, as well as the location of the infection point on Earth. Back at the meeting, everyone agrees that they should not model the new command structure after the O5 Council, as they had zero accountability. They also agree that the new command needs to contain a diverse set of opinions on the anomalous, with former Foundation personnel comprising half of the board at most. It will be awkward in the best case scenario, and possibly hostile, mixing all of these different viewpoints, but they agree that they need to make it work. No one is opposed to the organization that they have so far outlined, one focused on protecting, informing, and normalizing the anomalous with the public in a staggered way. A conjoining of forces between those represented at this table, and possibly more in the future. This organization comes to be known as Vanguard, with the motto of Shelter, Normalize, Inform. As far as we can tell then, between this rational discussion and the future version of the timeline glimpsed by Ilsa, Vanguard works out. The public comes to accept the existence of anomalies in a controlled manner, and the SCP-6500 crisis is solved, with the world existing in a much different state than before. 
But what if that vote had gone differently? Let's rewind a little bit and see what a nay vote would have resulted in. A world where the Foundation refused to capitulate to an anomalous force. Just as before, we're given two more paths to look at in this timeline. So let's start with the path of the Reliquarians. The path begins on the Eastern Nile Delta at a classified Foundation dig site. Dr. Laura Cruz, a Foundation archaeologist, had been assigned to this dig site during the peak of the SCP-6500 crisis, when all sorts of anomalous life had gone extinct. Now, however, she was watching magic return to the world as the crisis started to improve. Dr. Cruz had been responsible for leading a dig on a major Davite site in Russia, but the anomalies there had literally turned to dust beneath her boots, so she was assigned here instead, the site of the Battle of the Delta. It was a major conflict which may have saved ancient Egypt from the Sea Peoples. Until tonight, it had been unremarkable, but now it was glowing. The dark soil was crisscrossed with a pattern of white and blue light, which made the team feel uneasy, as if the past was screaming at them. The readings from their equipment show it to be mundane mud and clay, with nothing unusual about it. They decide that they should evacuate, as this makes their dig highly visible, so Dr. Cruz grabs a soil sample and they flee the area. Not long after, a GOC helicopter swoops over the dig site. The Foundation was wrong about many things, but a few things specifically were particularly relevant. Firstly, that they had recovered all of the artifacts which could have been used to undo the crisis. Secondly, that their recent efforts had done anything to defeat the Bo Lineage, or their Foundation Elimination Coalition. Finally, that this had been the first and only impasse. Elsewhere, in Port Said, Egypt, aboard the SCPS Phoenix, Commander Amir Abdul addresses the task force they had set up here. Officially, it had been termed Provisional Task Force Sigma 11, and they were eight men and women from across the Foundation set to reclaim three archaeological sites which had fallen under Coalition control. Their topic of discussion was the Foundation Elimination Coalition, formerly a GOC splinter group led by Agent Martin Bow from the Path of the Mage. With Bow now in Foundation custody, they believe it to be led by a man named John Itterick, alleged High Priest of the Children of the Scarlet King. The group hopes to bring back magic on their own terms, but another agent remarks that magic is already back, thanks to the four artifacts, and asks if they hope to bring back another form of magic. Another member of the task force, Dr. Athenadora Cat, an actual cat, chimes in to say that they may be working from the theory that the four artifacts are not the only ones with various others being proposed before the four were discovered. Commander Abdul continues, saying that the group is likely weak, having only succeeded with raising one site to the ground so far. One agent, Price, 
asks what Dr. Willis Weddle is doing here, referring to him as Wet Blanket Weddle. He says that he has a doctorate in the history of the Mediterranean and he works in replication studies. He's going to help reclaim the dig site in the Delta along with two other agents, including Agent Price and Dr. Cruz. Meanwhile, the rest of the team, led by Agent Navarro, is going to reclaim a shipwreck in Santorini, with both teams afterwards meeting up to take out a base of operations at a reliquary in Athens. On the coast of Santorini, Greece, Agent Navarro and his team arrive via a jetty, avoiding a UN blockade thanks to a device created by another member of the team, Dr. Placeholder McDoctorate. Placeholder explains that the device makes people who view it see anyone within 10 meters as being part of the background, de-protagonizing people. They are joined by Dr. Zur, who remarks that she hates pataphysics, and Dr. Cat, who is excited to go to an actual dig site. Dr. Cat explains that the shipwreck here seems to predate the Minoan eruption on Santorini, with the eruption cited as the inspiration for the destruction of Atlantis, and possibly the biblical plague of Exodus. The ruins of the city of Akrotiri managed to survive the eruption, as well as a ship, one that doesn't match any Mediterranean civilization of that period. It may be connected to the Shurden, one of the groups that made up the infamous Sea Peoples, since it features the design of a laurel crown around a chalice, with some form of eight-pointed star in the background. Dr. Zur isn't too pleased that they got saddled with a talking cat, but she does at least possess a number of doctorates. Meanwhile, back at the Classified Foundation dig site in Egypt, Price contemplates how terrible this situation is. They're in the wetlands, so stealthy movement is near impossible. Dr. Weddle continues to get stuck in the mud and brushes up against what he's convinced are crocodiles, likely drawing more attention to the group. There were potential vectors of infection everywhere, and the dig site was uphill from them, making her job as a sniper more difficult. Even worse is the behavior of her cohorts, with Agent Wexley being fairly professional, but Drs. Weddle and Cruz continuing to drone on about various historical and archaeological discussions. Dr. Weddle was arguing that there has been a prior 6500 crisis in history before this one, but Dr. Cruz wasn't convinced, as there's no evidence. He argues that the Sheridan and other Sea Peoples may be descendants of Atlantis, but Cruz says that even if it were true, it would be impossible to prove as water destroys history worse than any fire can. Agent Wexley interrupts them, trying to spot for Price, when a set of three gunshots rang out from the dig site. Wexley pulled down his bandana and took a deep breath, smelling motor oil, gunpowder, blood, and gray matter, recognizing the victims as non-archaeologists due to not having the stink of dirt upon them. It seems that Wexley is an anomaly himself, but reassures the others that he won't bite out their jugulars, but it gets gruesome. He then detects a new scent, which he says smells like the time a colleague of his 
unloaded a howitzer into a regenerating combatant on the Foundation's thylacine farm. The thylacine was the largest known marsupial in the world before it went extinct, but the Foundation has been cloning them since around 1997 to harvest their bone marrow for the containment of at least three anomalies in Australia. Dr. Weddell asks Cruz for a sample of the dig site soil, and then smears the dirt onto a paper cut on his hand. His skin proceeded to emit an eerie blue light, and then the paper cut faded. Wexley can no longer smell the blood and grey matter, but the gunpowder scent remains. They're then interrupted by the sound of a loud mechanical buzzing overhead. At the dig site, a man named Alan Hannigan laughs as he watches his men get up, and says that the cicada god's chalice works. A woman directs people where to dig, reasoning that the chalice had to be in this area, as it had infected the soil. She reasons that the goblet is made of false orichalcos, which is why it's leaching into the ground around it. It has apparently resurrected the men that they just shot, with no loss of coordination or motor function. Proper revivication. If the Foundation got their hands on it, they'd probably just use it to extend the lives of the O5s even further, so that's why they're giving it to Iteric instead, the head of the Foundation Elimination Coalition. They're preparing for some sort of ritual, and they have teams moving in on the site at Santorini to collect a sacrifice. Hannigan is then alerted that they have just captured four Foundation personnel, one of them an archaeologist. He then frowns and asks if they have any silver, as they're going to need it. In coalition-occupied Athens, John Iterick was contemplating how to keep the FEC afloat without bow. The four artifacts had been used by the Foundation to undo this impasse, but it didn't account for the previous ones. They chose the name Sixth Sun to describe their efforts as a tribute to the Aztecs, without realizing that there had been five prior impasses, and the Foundation was unwittingly on the verge of discovering evidence of the first. Ariadne's claw had been used to lead magic back into reality in the 1600s. The Blackfire Lance had slain the Davite Chainmaker at Gettysburg, and the Bell of Entropy had been used by the Nazis when they tried to bring back magic on their terms during the Seventh Occult War. The artifacts used to undo the first impasse, however, had been lost to the ages. Until now. Iteric is holding a box handed to him by the archaeologists, one with the image of concentric rings surrounded by an eight-pointed star carved into it. Inside of the box was a golden crown, made to look like the leaves of a laurel, flexing as if it were alive, and the laurels had the texture and scent of fresh leaves. This is the crown of Sherd, which can apparently store and distribute knowledge. He hands the crown to a young man who places it on his head, and spends several minutes storing knowledge into it. This man is 05-4, who says that if the council is so adamant about keeping the status quo, 
then he thinks it's time the Foundation became obsolete. He warns Iteric to be careful with the crown, as O50 said that overuse of it made him grow his third arm. Over in Santorini, the team comes up to the shipwreck, mostly buried beneath volcanic sediment. They're in awe of the scale of it, with only the prow sticking out. It bore no name on it, only a symbol, a chalice bearing a cicada wreathed by a laurel crown with concentric rings behind it. The Foundation has never gotten a complete scan of the ship, as it's too big, but they think the hull extends about a kilometer down, and it might be anomalously big. Dr. Navarro notes that it's made of gopher wood, from a now extinct tree native to the Near East, which means that it's bigger on the inside than the outside. Dr. Cat chimes in over the communicators to say that this wood was reportedly used to build Noah's Ark, and the Foundation has been trying to clone the tree for years. Navarro says that it's completely stable, and he has a chest made of it back home that he uses to store art supplies. When they enter the ship, they fall out of a bubble of water at the top, onto slanted ground. The ship should have normally been completely flooded, but unfortunately for them, the Coalition had arrived first and set up matter excluders around the ship, allowing for a dry space. Deeper into the ship, a team of Coalition archaeologists dug through detritus, looking for an artifact known as the Homecoming Map, a medallion that can act as a map to any point on Earth, and allows for instantaneous teleportation there. Two men comment on the idea that if the Foundation found it, they'd lock it up and throw away the key. They're interrupted by a perimeter breach alarm at the main entrance of the shipwreck. Back over at the Egypt dig site, Dr. Cruz was sitting at one end of a table, as Hannigan pointed a pistol at her and demanded she tell him about the dig site. Cruz simply responded by giving her name, foundation rank, and serial number. He asks again, and she repeats it, so one of Hannigan's men comes over and snaps her finger. She falls out of her chair, screaming, and digs her hand into the dirt, causing the soil to swiftly heal her finger. She tells Hannigan that it's kind of hard to threaten death and pain when you're literally on ground where both of those things are impossible. He says she knows something about the chalice, but she doesn't, despite working at this site for five years. He then asks if she's ever found anything like this piece of metal with an unearthly glow to it, which she has once or twice, but nothing intact. She deduces that the chalice must be made of that metal, infused with healing properties that have infected the soil, and probably associated with some kind of deity of life or healing. Hannigan tells her that she's going to help them find the chalice here, and as some incentive, he has Dr. Weddle shot, but not killed. She says that Weddle's a crybaby, and he'll heal, which Hannigan agrees with, but not Wexley, as they have silver bullets. Back at the shipwreck, the group is cut off from communications with Dr. Cat, and the three inside are thrown off by the interior proportions of the place. 
they come across a small statue with four hands sticking out of it, each missing an index finger. It was clearly a representation of some deity made of bronze, its hands showing signs of having held something at some point. It reminded Navarro, vaguely, of statues portraying Hindu deities, but far more static and stoic in posture, like one that would be found in Egypt or Babylon. Its face, much like this ship, tried to mimic the golden ratio of mathematics, but was off-kilter, with Navarro calling it the artistic equivalent of the uncanny valley. Dr. Zur takes the small statue in her pack, while Navarro looks further down the ship and sees work lamps. Placeholder says that the FEC are likely looking for a MacGuffin, as that's what most mystical artifacts tend to be. He wonders what power they think it has to be worth risking the use of an entire array of matter excluders. The group is then ambushed by one of the FEC members, but he's quickly subdued, telling them that they're looking for a map made by the Sheridan that helps you find your way wherever you need to be. Suddenly, Placeholder, Navarro, and Zur felt hands on their backs, and are teleported to the bottom of the ship, surrounded by bright work lights. Rather than being executed, however, as they are Foundation, captured by the Foundation Elimination Coalition, they are treated to a dinner of lamb chops. The other captured group, at the dig site, is not being treated quite as well, with guns to the backs of their heads. Dr. Weddle says to the others that he's the sacrificial lamb, because he's expendable. He can't tell them anything about what they're looking for, as he only wrote about the shirt in once, and that paper fit on ten pages. He asks an FEC soldier if they'd let him go to the bathroom, and he's taken over to where they had dug a latrine. Weddell mustered up what little courage he had, and managed to grab the soldier and wrestle him over to the river, where he had surmised that a crocodile was lurking. The crocodile lunged for the soldier, but he narrowly avoided it, instead allowing Weddell to punch him in the temple and knock him out. He dragged the soldier away from the water and took his phone, ringing up a number that answered as South Cairo Produce Market. Weddell responded that he'd like to order a deluxe Baba Ganoush platter, mambar for ten, and a small tiramisu with tequila. Within a few seconds, he was connected to the SCPS Phoenix. Meanwhile, the others are wondering what happened to Weddell, with Price commenting that maybe he fell in with a gator and hopefully took the soldier with him. An argument had broken out at the camp over how slow the dig was going, with Dr. Cruz being accused of purposefully stalling. Wexley called out that instead of relying on her, they should use the person who has augmented senses. He can't smell magic, but if they have a sample of what they're looking for, he can sniff it out. Hannigan pulled out the piece of metal and let Wexley smell it. He proceeded to begin digging in an area that no one else had thought to. Hannigan remarks that he didn't think the Foundation employed werewolves, and Wexley says that he used to work in IT, 
but too many full moons made it hard to work a keyboard, so he was put on a task force instead. Wexley makes contact with something metallic, and continues to dig, without mentioning it. He deduces that they have silver bullets, and says that it was originally Quicksilver, or Mercury, that killed werewolves, but of course, Mercury kills pretty much everything. Regular silver works because people believe that it does. He finally unearths the metallic chalice from the ground, each handle embellished with what looked like the leaves of an olive tree, and the front of the cup had an image of a cicada. Hannigan calls over people to prepare the chalice for transport, but Wexley asks him if silver works on werewolves because people believe that it does, what happens when a werewolf believes that it's immune to silver? Hannigan quickly raised his pistol and fired at him, but instead of knocking him to the ground in pain, it seemed to peel away a layer of skin and cloth, revealing fur underneath. Wexley grabbed at the skin and cloth around it and tore his normal body away, revealing his full werewolf form. He throws the chalice at Price and yells at them to run. Foundation helicopters begin circling overhead, thanks to Weddell's phone call, just as Wexley removes Hannigan's left arm and tosses it 20 feet away. Back during the Lamb Chop dinner, Navarro is inspecting the homecoming map, which he theoretically could use to teleport out of here, except for all of the guns being pointed at the other two doctors and the fact that he didn't know how to use it. He refers to it as an art. Anomalous art, as a lot of archaeological findings are artistic in nature, even if that's not the first thing that comes to mind. He's never seen anything like it, though, and hands it back to the man dining with them, Vanderlind. Placeholder and Zur aren't eating their food, and Placeholder says that he's not sure what to do when the antagonist makes nice, not immediately shooting them or monologuing. Vanderlind guesses that he's a pataphysist from Sloth's Pit, and says that they would be fascinated with what they've been able to research about Sheridan mythology. Another perimeter breach alarm sounds, and two agents teleport off with the map to handle it. Vanderlind continues by explaining that everything about the Sheridan is essentially completely opposite to the Greek way of life, with a mainly matriarchal society and their gods rarely being humanoid, instead taking on animal forms. He says that he doesn't like the Foundation, but he's an archaeologist himself, and Iteric aims to do something horrific for the sake of giving this organization stain power. He hands a small grimoire to Dr. Zur, and she reads a section from it that reads, With the chalice of the cicada god, I make my empire immortal. With the homecoming map, I make my kingdom unfindable. With the crown of Sherd, I make my reign omniscient. With the blood of a follower, I complete this pact. Iteric is planning on using the artifacts as part of a ritual that requires the blood of a follower to complete, which will make the Foundation Elimination Coalition immortal. The follower turns out to be Dr. Cat, and Vanderlind says that she'll be safe for the time being, 
as Iteric still needs to arrange transport to Athens. Navarro stands, ready to fight his way out if necessary, and says that they need to get out of here and find her. One of the agents that checked the perimeter breach returns and says that they all need to leave, as the matter excluders are starting to run out of power. Vanderland tells Navarro that he's extending a truce between them until they all get out and for a half an hour after. They all proceed to hold on to one another as Vanderland activates the map, Navarro watching every movement he makes while doing so. The group suddenly finds themselves on a boat in Santorini's harbor, and Vanderlind abides by his truce, letting them go. Placeholder asks why, as they could just shoot them, but Vanderlind says that, in terms a pataphysist can understand, the universe prefers an interesting villain over a boring hero. The three Foundation members went back to the jetty, seen evidence of a struggle, with scratch marks and blood on the sand, a few tranquilizer darts, and signs of a hand that was big enough to pick up a human with a single finger. Over at the dig site, the Foundation had come down on the FEC like a sledgehammer on an egg, but it wasn't enough, thanks to the chalice's power keeping everyone alive and healthy. The only thing it came down to was which side would run out of ammo first and the Foundation was losing. Dr. Cruz was hiding in a tent during the chaos when her phone rang, with Dr. Zur on the other end informing her that Dr. Cat was taken to Athens to be a sacrifice of some kind. Cruz tells her that they need extraction, as the Coalition has more munitions and they aren't dying. Zur pauses for a moment before mentioning how they had accidentally hit a pocket of gas at a dig site once, and suggests that crews blow up part of the dig site by lighting a fire in their munitions tent. Dr. Cruz proceeded to break off a chair leg, wrap it in material from part of her pants, and ignite it on a nearby hot plate. She then ran outside, bullets striking her every few steps, but her wounds were instantly healed. She made it into the munitions tent, where she tore out several pages of an issue of National Geographic to use as kindling. She spread the paper around various boxes of ammo and grenades, and lit it all. She began running towards the Foundation forces when the explosion hit her from behind, feeling her organs repeatedly rupture and heal as she's knocked to the ground and fades into unconsciousness. Afterwards, the Foundation was able to retake the dig site and tie up the FEC members. Wexley was putting on a new set of clothes, telling Commander Abdul that Dr. Cat has been taken prisoner and they need to get to Athens. They don't have the chalice, so they can't go through with the ritual, but they do have an artifact that allows them to teleport. Speaking of which, a tall, pale entity with too many arms suddenly appears in the command tent and grabs the chalice before vanishing once again. Now they really need to get to Athens. In Athens, the GOC had mandated a curfew related to an imminent terrorist attack. Dr. Cat was wrapped inside ropes as she was taken into the Parthenon, and John Iterick explains to her how rare it is to find someone who genuinely believes 
and the old gods. Dr. Cat is being used as a sacrifice thanks to her true belief, and she says that the FEC is probably going to use the artifacts to give themselves infinite power and the ability to destroy the Foundation. Iteric says if only the Foundation had more like her in it, people willing to think instead of follow. She says that the gods won't be happy about human blood being spilled onto one of their sacred sites, but Iteric replies that they divined the entrails of animals all the time, this is just a more refined form of that. He then somehow wills her to sleep, with her seeing a vision of a woman clad in gold, with an owl upon her shoulder. Meanwhile, Dr. Weddle was complaining about being the pack mule of the group, although he was the only one who would be considered a non-combatant. They were heading towards the Parthenon, which drone reconnaissance had showed to be lit by torchlight and completely unguarded. Before being shot down though, the drone had detected what had been described as a large humanoid form inside the main temple. Within view of the torchlight, they began setting up when suddenly a mental compulsion forced them to begin walking towards the temple. The seven of them silently moved into the Parthenon until they stood in front of John Iteric. Iteric had grown by about three feet, his skin had turned a shade of alabaster, and he had grown two extra arms. All four of his hands were the size of a card table, and he was wearing or holding three artifacts, along with Dr. Cat. Navarro recognizes that Iteric has altered his form to match the image of one of the deities, but Iteric says it wasn't a choice, as the crown did the same thing to O50. The two of them both agree that the foundation deserves to be destroyed, but Iteric will be the one to unmake it. Navarro says that he knows the foundation isn't perfect, but he also knows that Iteric is screwed. The ground he's standing on is built with pentelic marble, which is very thaumically malleable. Navarro uses his anomalous abilities to move the floor and wrap it around Iteric's arms and legs, pinning him in place. Dr. Cat awakens, horrified that Navarro is using one of the most valuable archaeological sites in the world as glorifying handcuffs, but Navarro says that they'll fix it after they're done. Unfortunately, Iteric easily slips out of the trap, and Navarro realizes that Iteric like the Sheridan, is incompatible with Greek architecture. Weddle then fled from the Parthenon, as the other six were driven to the ground by Iteric's magical energy. Dr. Cat struggles uselessly against the ropes, and she asks Iteric to let her say one last prayer to Athene, the Greek goddess of wisdom. Iteric doesn't see what harm a prayer said by a house cat could do, so he allows it. She proceeds to pray to Athene for the strength to scratch this idiot for not doing his research. The ropes holding Dr. Cat suddenly explode into ribbons as the form of a woman in her early thirties lands on the floor, clad in a lab coat and slacks, claws at her fingertips, and a pair of cat ears on her head. 
she proceeded to lunge at Iteric and rake her claws across his flesh. Price reveals that Dr. Cat is a type yellow anomaly, a shapeshifter. Wexley also manifests his werewolf form and attacks Iteric, along with Price, as the others discuss how to actually stop him, not just distract him. They look to the statue of the deity to figure out what his weakness might be, as the statue was made using the Sheridan mathematical ratio rather than the Greek golden ratio. They realize that their weakness might be in their index fingers, which were longer than the rest. They tell the others, and Wexley mauls through the tendons of Iteric's lower ring fingers, causing him to drop the map. Dr. Cat picked it up and threw it to Price, who ran with it, chased by Iteric. Before he could grab her though, she activated the map and vanished. Iteric then used the power of the crown on his head to force the rest of them to the ground, saying that if he can't have his power, he'll show them why they should forsake theirs. He explains that the Foundation undid the impasse, but they undid it incorrectly. The Cicada God's Chalice, which can revive the dead, could have remade many anomalous organisms. The Homecoming Map could have found plenty of portals and nexuses, and Sherd's crown could have let them know an unknown amount of knowledge. These artifacts were designed to undo an impasse, as they are failsafes created after the Sherdin caused the first impasse. They had hoarded all of the magical artifacts and occult knowledge they could get their hands on, and when Sherda was eventually unmade, Refugees built floating cities throughout the Mediterranean, and became the Sea Peoples. They searched for artifacts that had once been theirs, hoping to find a new Sherda. He finishes by saying that he only wanted Dr. Cat dead, as the dead cannot speak the truth, and the rest of them shall know it. Sherd's crown stores the truthful knowledge of all who wear it, and one of the O5 Council wore it not twelve hours ago. Iteric activates the crown, flooding O5-4's knowledge into their minds. They see a long debate about the changing of the world, the bitter feelings of a man who had been losing faith, a snarling hatred at one he knew as thirteen, the knowledge that it was all their fault. An exchanging of blows across a table, a visit to the prison cell of a being with four arms and the stink of magic, an exchanging of words, a gaining of knowledge, the drawing of a map, and a new purpose. If the Foundation wouldn't unmake itself, then it would be unmade. Iteric says that their council is corrupt and always has been, willing to strangle the world to keep the status quo. They see more images, of a blaze in a country called tomorrow, the sun flickering and dying, humanity growing cold on a desolate rock, having never known the warmth of a distant star. Egomaniacs crushing men and women beneath their boots, stars flickering out of existence, the afterlife emptying. Iteric tells them that this is what will come to pass when the final occult war arrives the ultimate fate of humanity thanks to the Foundation. 
He's cut off by a great, terrible sound, and he stumbles, his four hands clutching at the space where half his head used to be. He falls to the ground, and blood flows out of him as he shrinks back down. Price comes over their radios, saying that this is why you don't monologue. She was able to get to her sniper rifle, thanks to Weddell having set it up for her after fleeing, and she calls him a damn good spotter, for what it's worth. Unfortunately, the shot had also completely ruined the crown that had been on Iteric's head, but at least the chalice and the map are still intact. The chalice then begins to tilt towards Iteric's body, but Navarro grabs it before restoring the floor of the Parthenon back to normal. Eventually, they all find their way back aboard the SCPS Phoenix, where medical treatment was deemed unnecessary thanks to the power of the chalice. Weddell's first exposure to it seemed to have bestowed regenerative properties on him, but he hopes that he's not immortal now, as that's the one thing that distinguishes him from the rest of Site-43. They're addressed by Commander Abdul, who says that the eight of them were handpicked for this assignment by an unknown member of the O5 Council. It bothers him that they have a mole at the highest level of the Foundation that wants their organization to fail. The same member also declared that this mission remain a complete secret, and they would normally have the members sign memetically reinforced gag orders. He's sure that Price and placeholders would wear off in a week due to some contrivance in Sloth's pit. He's not sure if Dr. Cat or Agent Wexley's physiology even works with human-targeted memetics. Weddell is around too much weird stuff for it to be safe to have a memetic agent in his head, Navarro probably hard-coded his brain to resist any and all memetic agents, and Doctors Cruz and Zur would probably revolt if they couldn't write at least one paper about their findings. Dr. Cruz asks when they'll get to see the artifacts up close, and Abdul tells them about a month, and afterwards they'll be sent in for reliquarian recycling, where they get shifted around to a bunch of reliquary sites for study, and restoration. He gives them all a day's shore leave in Rome to relax, and after the meeting, Price notices Weddell looking downcast. He says that reliquarian recycling is actually a euphemism for an anomalous item being melted down to its basest components. Everyone else turns to him in shock, and he continues, saying that they'll take a sacred artifact, destroy anything on it that remotely resembles religious iconography, remove valuable bits like gemstones, run it through a few magic-killing chemical processes, and then melt the entire thing down or incinerate it. He says they have a brick on display at their section that looks like iron with gold flecks inside of it, but it used to be the Spear of Destiny. Dr. Zur wonders why they would destroy the artifacts if they would be instrumental in undoing or preventing another impasse. Placeholder says that they don't want to, as the Council knows that they caused the impasse by micromanaging and categorizing and cataloging everything, but they want to keep magic out of the world and keep it under their thumb. Wexley says that some of the Council voted for the Foundation to dissolve, 
and wonders if that wouldn't be worse. Price doesn't think so though, as people living inside of a nexus know what the anomalous world is like because they've never known anything but the anomalous. They had a chance to save everything and make things right, and it got thrown away by one vote. Weddell guesses that the chalice and the map will be kept intact for three or four months, maybe a year for the chalice due to its usefulness. With nothing to do about it, the group sadly headed off towards Rome. Three days later, at the Atlanta International Airport, the eight of them sat around a table at the airport bar. They lament the information they learned from the Crown, and how corrupt the Foundation is at its core. The impasse will happen again, because the Foundation has no intention of dissolving to stop it, but they'll likely keep the four artifacts around to undo the next one as well. Navarro says that the final occult war is coming, and humanity is screwed when it happens. Most people don't believe in magic, religions are losing their faithful by the bucketful, and the damage of this impasse can't be undone. Price says that they're not going to just sit here and take it. They're not just going to let the world burn for the sake of half a dozen grody, immortal idiots who think that the status quo is going to save the world. The world is going to burn, but before it does, they're going to make sure every man, woman, and child has a fire extinguisher. She pulls out a fragment of Sherd's crown that she had managed to grab and hide. Vanderlyn's notes had said that there's no limit to the space over which knowledge can be spread using the crown. Even with a fragment of it, they could at the very least cover this hemisphere. Dr. Cat proceeds to say a prayer to the great goddess Hecate, she who works her will, the far-reaching, the three who are one. She says that her gift of magic has faded from the world once due to our ignorance, and it will fade once more if we don't take action. She asks Hecate to guide them and show them the path to take this fragment, where three roads meet, the place of the branching path. Afterwards, they were silent for a moment, before Wexley took the fragment of the crown and let a fragment of knowledge flow out of him, something he had learned about on an operation years ago. The knowledge then began spreading outwards into others, and they could see people outside checking their phones, wondering where they'd heard the news. Wexley says, it's not veil-breaking, and it'll be a nice surprise for everyone involved. In Chicago, the Department of Disinformation was trying to figure out who had leaked it, before eventually shrugging and deciding to go public with a pre-approved cover story. The news that had leaked was about the population of living thylacines being cared for in a remote part of Tasmania. Wexley handed the fragment back to Price, his nose bleeding, guessing that it needs the full crown to not be harmful to the wearer. Dr. Cruz says that they might be the only people outside of the council who knows just how deep the corruption goes, but they won't likely go through the effort to eliminate them. Splinter factions branch off from the Foundation all the time, and they usually burn out and fade away. Wexley doesn't think they'll fade, and Placeholder says that it feels like they're part of a secret club, 
so they should have some kind of name. Weddle suggests Vanguard, but Navarro says it sounds like a superhero team. Price suggests Threshold, and the name seems to stick. Dr. Cruz says they need more artifacts if they're going to do this, and ponders if there's any out there that can be used to normalize anomalies, like the crown. Dr. Cat says there has to be something in the Near East like that, possibly starting with gopher wood. Placeholder says Sloth's Pit has to have at least one in its borders, along with some other nexuses. Navarro says Anart is getting crazier all the time, and he could get into contact with a few people to find out. Weddle interrupts them all and says that this is all ridiculous. This is going to blow up in their faces, and the best case scenario is that they all get assigned to Keter duty. He then knocks back a shot of whiskey and says, screw it, it beats falling flat on his face every September. Each of them took a glass and toasted to Threshold. On her flight back to Australia, Dr. Cat watched a thylacine maul the Prime Minister, thinking that the future was looking just a bit brighter. That was quite the series of events, but it does make this timeline look a little bit more optimistic than we may have first assumed. This isn't due to the Foundation's actions, however, but rather a small group with the will to do what the majority of the Council could not. The story isn't over yet, as we have one more path to go, the path of the Warlock, and it's the longest one yet. After that, we'll find out which of the two votes was the right choice, and which one was the wrong. <laughs>